0: Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Father, as we pause here this morning in your presence, I know some people are coming out of a severe trial. Some are getting ready to go in one and... And some are in the thick of it this morning with a lot of grief and heartache, some facing serious physical problems, others having been abandoned by a spouse, some in the grief of having lost someone they deeply loved, some having just lost a job, so many different trials represented here. But you told us that we are to let endurance have its perfect result, that we might be complete and perfect, lacking nothing. So help us to go through the trial. You told us in the midst of a trial that if we lack wisdom, we are to ask of you for help and insight. Thank you that those who are the called according to your purpose, that you work everything together for our good THAT WE MIGHT BE CONFORMED TO THE IMAGE OF CHRIST THAT HE WOULD BE FIRST PLACE IN ALL THINGS THAT HE MIGHT BE GLORIFIED SO THANK YOU THAT YOU USE EVEN TRIALS FOR YOUR OWN HONOR AND GLORY AND THANK YOU FOR YOUR WORD THAT IS LIKE BREAD MEAT MILK HONEY THAT IT IS THE TOOL AND INSTRUMENT THAT YOU USE TO BRING ABOUT CONVERSION BUT NOW TO GROW US LORD JESUS YOU SAID THAT your Word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. So help me as the under-shepherd today to rightly divide your Word. Take the preparation and study I've done and, and help by the Spirit of God to make it understandable so that we can see not just what you have said but what you are saying to your church today. Please come and fill me and help me and anoint me and speak to every person who is listening. And I ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Take God's word this morning, would you? Revelation chapter 18. If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the revelation of Jesus Christ that's given to the apostle John. Now, I must tell you that chapters 17 and 18 are probably the two most difficult chapters in all of the Revelation. In many series, people just skip them or they maybe do even one sermon to cover them. But while they're difficult, they're not impossible. God gave us these chapters so we can understand them. And so this is the sixth sermon on these two chapters. And so it's a rather long section today, but pay attention. God wants us to get this. Now, we know that at the end of time, before Jesus comes, a political leader is going to come on the scene who will emerge out of the former Roman Empire. The Bible says in Revelation 13 that he will have authority over every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and he will have the most extensive world empire the world has ever seen or will see apart from the Lord Jesus himself. He'll come with a compelling dynamic. He'll come with deception. He'll come with demonic power. He'll come with great cleverness and solutions as the world will be looking for answers. They will be looking for a Savior of sorts during this seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. There are some 30 titles that are given to this man. Often John describes him simply as the beast. Probably the most popular name is the Antichrist. He comes in the place of Christ and he comes against Christ. And so, chapters 17 and 18 are very, very important. Because it helps us to understand the atmosphere that the son of perdition, the Antichrist, will create just before Jesus comes back from heaven. And we have been studying that the capital of this coming world leader is going to be a place called Babylon. Now, we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 9 precisely where we left off, so follow along and listen carefully. And the kings of the earth... Who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit of you long for uh, the fruit you long for has gone from you, and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, "Woe, woe, the great city." She who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster, and every passenger and sailor, and as many as make their living by the sea, stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, "'What city is like the great city?' And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, "'So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. The sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer, and no craftsmen or any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer.'" And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your search sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who have been slain on the earth. Now, there are two great cities that are underscored in the Bible. They are both called the great city. One is Jerusalem. It's mentioned over 800 times in the Bible. It's first mentioned in Genesis 14. It's last mentioned in Revelation chapter 21. Jerusalem, in God's eyes, is a very special city. The Bible teaches it is the most important city on the face of the earth. When God looks down from heaven, the prophet Ezekiel records these words of this city. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I've set her at the center of the nations with lands around her." It is the most important city on the face of the earth, more important than Washington or Tokyo or New York or Moscow or any other place you can think of. And both the Old and the New Testaments affirm that truth. But the devil is going to try to replace the plan and purposes of God through Jerusalem with his own city. And so there's a coming city called Babylon. It exists today. But it will come to the forefront at the end of time before Jesus' return from heaven. And it will not represent the city of God, but the city of man. Babylon is the second most prominent city mentioned in the Bible over 300 times, beginning in Genesis 10 all the way to its destruction here in the 18th chapter of the Revelation. If Jerusalem represents the plans and purposes of God, Babylon represents the plans and purposes of man. In the Old Testament, is filled, like the New Testament, with references to Babylon. We studied its inception in Genesis chapter 10. It's called the Tower of Babel. That's the shortened Hebrew for what the Greek translation, the Septuagint, calls the Tower of Babylon. And if you remember, under a man named Nimrod, the first federation, the first united nation, so to speak, that sought to bring the human race together politically and religiously was under a man by the name of Nimrod who sought to replace God and exalt man. He deified the creation and he sought to dethrone God. And he is a prototype. He is an illustration of the coming Antichrist. The coming Antichrist we've seen already in our study of Revelation will emerge just as Daniel says and just as the Revelation affirms, out of the former Roman Empire that is going to be revived. There will be 10 nations that will come together, and then an 11th will come up among them from which the little horn called the Antichrist will rule. Now, turn back in your Bible for a moment to chapter 17 because I think it would be helpful for us to review. If you were here two weeks ago, the lights went off before this service began, and so we sat in the dark, but you guys listened well, and I thank you for that. Revelation 17 and verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me, saying, come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. We've seen that the judgments are going to come, 21 of them, in the terms of seals, trumpets, and bowls. The bold judgments are described in chapters 15 and 16, and there are seven angels, each having one of God's bowls of wrath, and one of those angels steps forward, and he invites John to come and see, to, to, to witness the judgment that God is going to bring on what he calls the great harlot. In the 17th chapter, she's called the mother of harlots, and she is known as Mystery Babylon. Now, we've already seen Babylon mentioned prior to the 17th and 18th chapters. And very often, God will mention something briefly, and then he'll come back to it. And that's what he's doing in these two chapters. He's going into slow motion as he delineates two sides of this city known as Babylon one is the religious side and the other is the political economic side. And so these two chapters are devoted to a real city and a real system, and so we need to pay attention. Now, just to refresh your minds of the overall context, remember Christ is dead, buried, risen, ascended, and the Bible says He is going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to come back. And when we come to chapter 19, we will see the return of Christ from heaven. We'll begin that next week. Then in chapter 20, he will remove from his kingdom every vestige of an unbeliever. He will rule and reign for a thousand years. Satan will be bound during that thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, we will see that Satan will be loose for a short period of time, and we'll see why God allows that and why it's so important. And he will gather some people who were born during the millennial reign through tribulation saints who entered in their natural bodies, and he will gather these unbelievers to go against God's Messiah. And then in chapters um, uh, 20 to 22, he'll further delineate what happens after Christ's returns. So in chapter 19, he describes what happens at Christ's return. Chapters 20 to 22, what happens after Christ's return. But here we are in the 18th chapter. And from chapter 6 to 18, he's describing the events that happen before Christ returns, before he rules and reigns. And he's giving us a picture here of the world conditions and of this one-world economic system under this man known as Antichrist. And I suppose now more than any other time in all of human history, Can we see why this might happen? If you lived 100 years ago, it would be virtually impossible to think of a one-world economy. 50 years ago, it wasn't impossible, but it was very hard. Today, we live in that one-world economy. The nations of the world are linked together. And of course, that has happened since I've been born God has allowed the nations of the world to depend upon one another, and that's going to be the format that the Antichrist will walk into. Now remember, chapter 17 is describing a religious system, and it is called in the 17th chapter, Mystery Babylon and Babylon the Great. Chapter 18, as you'll see so clearly today, is describing an economic system. It's called also Babylon the Great. And not by accident, because God is referring to the same place, the same city, but two sides of it. Now, they both exist for two distinct reasons, but they have at least five things in common that are very important. Number one, they are the same city, namely Rome. And we came to that conclusion, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. If you were not here for that, you might want to go back and listen to that message Number two, they both share the same fallen satanic power. There's parallels in both. Both are inspired by the evil one, both religious Babylon and economic Babylon. Number three, they're the same in that they have the same ruler, namely the Antichrist. Number four, they both hate the saints of God. They persecute God's people, Jew and Gentile alike. And number five, they're associated with the kings of the earth in what God calls fornication. Yet when you come to chapter 18, there are some marked distinct differences from Mystery Babylon of chapter 17. Now if you remember, if you look down in uh, verse 5 here of chapter 17, there's a title written across her forehead. Now you will notice that it is in all capital letters. Most of the time in the NASB, that's an indication that, that it's an Old Testament quote. This is one of the rare exceptions. This is for a title, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of abominations on the earth. And so Babylon the Great is going to be the religious center of the world. God is going to allow the nations of the world to come together with a religious glue. In fact, look down at verse 9 of chapter 17. "'Here is the mind which has wisdom.' The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So this one world religion that we've spent three messages on, if it's new to you, where this woman, she's described like a harlot because she is unfaithful to this truth of Scripture. She sits on a place that's designated as seven mountains. Now, a sloppy handling of Scripture where you get your theology from a novel rather than from the Bible may lead you to some false conclusions. In the 80s and 90s, there was a number of books that came out, and they identified Babylon as Babylon in Iraq. But we saw that that's an impossible position biblically because we saw from two Old Testament passages that God said when Babylon is destroyed, she will never again be inhabited. And since the destruction of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians, no one has ever lived in that place just as God has said. And God said it will never be inhabited from generation to generation. So that eliminates eliminates Babylon and Iraq. Um, Tim LaHaye, who's a good brother now in heaven, died a year or so ago. He wrote a very popular series, Left Behind. And of course, he identified the United Nations in New York as Babylon. Still others would say Jerusalem or maybe even Mecca. And the temptation, I think, is to interpret the Bible through current events Instead of interpreting current events through the Bible, we know from chapter 17 and verse 18 here that this place called Babylon is the great city. We know that this city sits on seven mountains. And again, if you let Scripture interpret Scripture, there is only one city in the world that would meet these specific qualifications. And of course, it is the city of Rome the city of Rome, as most of you know, is the headquarters of the largest world religion, Roman Catholicism. Here's a picture of Pope Francis, who three months ago made this statement. Listen carefully. He said, most people in the world identify to be believers. This should lead us to dialogue among the world's religions. We should not stop praying for it and collaborating with those who think differently. Many think differently, feel differently seeking God or meeting God in different ways. But there is one certainty that we all have, and that is that we are all children of God. That's not true. We are not all children of God. The Bible is very clear that you must approach the Father through the Son and in the Holy Spirit as a born-again person. The Bible says, but as many as received Him, Jesus... To them, he has given the right, the power, the authority to become children of God, namely to those who believe in his name. And yet this pope, like his two predecessors, but this one more aggressively than any pope in Roman Catholic history, on 20 different occasions since he has taken office, has gathered religious leaders together to uh, form what he argues is a unity of the religions of the world. Just two months ago, Pope Francis signed a document with the Grand Imam of al Hazar. It's entitled, Who's a Muslim Leader in the World? And it's entitled, The Document on Human Fraternity for World Peace and Living Together. And they agreed to these terms. I've read the whole document, and their signatures are at the bottom. They write, the first and most important aim of religions is to believe in God, to honor Him, and to invite all men and women to believe that this universe depends on a God who governs it. The pluralism and the diversity of religions are willed by God in His wisdom through which He created human beings. No, the religions of the world are not all willed by God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So you have to decide, are you going to believe the Pope? Are you going to believe the Lord Jesus? Now, Pope Francis, who is given the title as the head of the church, he would be wise to bow down and worship the true head and to agree with what the Lord Jesus has said. Now, we carefully examine from a number of passages Why only one city, Rome, could fit the parameters of these two chapters. And let me just say parenthetically, as a former Roman Catholic, I am not a Catholic basher. And there are born-again Catholics in the world who, through their own study of Scripture, have come to know the Lord Jesus. I'm not a Catholic basher. I want to see the one-plus-billion Roman Catholics who are not converted to come to true faith. But the Roman Catholic Church, on paper, denies justification by grace alone through faith alone. They deny the five solos of the Reformation that are on the window behind you. And if anyone is doing the bashing, it is the Roman Catholic Church. Because in the Council of Trent that met from 1542 to 1568, reaffirmed at Vatican I, Vatican II, and then as recently as 2011 through the College of Cardinals saying that the Council of Trent and its dogmas are absolutely true and to be observed. In that document, there are over 100 anathemas, over 100 statements damning people to hell, not of all the isms of the world, but to Bible-believing evangelical Christians. So let's be clear as to who is doing the bashing in our day. And so we saw John use the identical kind of terminology that he used in Revelation 11 and verse 8. While this is a real city, there is some symbolic meaning behind it. If you remember Revelation 11 and verse 8, he speaks of the great city here, Jerusalem. Remember, two cities are called the great city in the Bible, Jerusalem, God's city, and Babylon, the second most mentioned city, man's city. The great city, he says specifically... Which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 mentions Rome as Babylon, which obviously cannot be Iraq since God said it would never be inhabited again. There he said, She, the church who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. He's passing on salutations from the believers in Rome, and he refers to the church as being in Babylon. It's a code name like Wall Street or Madison Avenue, and appropriately so because the Babylonian empire paralleled the Roman empire in terms of size, splendor, power, and in the negative sense in terms of decadence and depravity. And so it's well documented in literature since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD that the Jewish people throughout the centuries to this day refer to Rome as Babylon, all of the early church fathers who came right after the apostles, much of their writings which we have, in fact, as I gave in my course in bibliology, you can reproduce the entire Bible, the entire New Testament, just through the writings of the church fathers, and they repeatedly refer to Rome as Babylon. In Revelation 17, drop down to verse 18, notice God through His angel um, gives John an added meaning as to how we're to understand the entity known as the woman. The woman whom you saw is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. This tells us that the woman is both a religious system, but it is also a literal city. We saw God do the same thing with the beast, with the Antichrist. He's a literal person, but he has a kingdom. And we do the same thing today. We say Hitler bombed England. He didn't literally bomb England, but his kingdom did, so to speak. And please note that it says in this verse, the woman is the great city. Not the woman will be like the great city. He is describing a real place, a real city. Listen, the Scripture is inspired down to the tense of a verb. Jesus gave an argument for his deity on the tense of a verb. Not I was the God of Abraham, but I am. Paul distinguishes between the, the word seeds, plural, and the word seed, singular. The Bible is inspired down to the smallest jot and tittle, Jesus said. The woman is the great city. He's describing a real place, a real city that is in existence when he writes the book of Revelation in 95 AD, which of course would eliminate places like New York and Hollywood and some of the other popular spots that wackos on the internet choose. So he's describing the great city built on seven mountains or orises or hills. Now, if you go into the Bible lands today and you go, say, to the Mount of Olives, you say, this isn't a mountain, this is a big hill. God calls it the Mount of Olives. And if he wants to call it a mountain, then I'm going to go with God, all right? He can call it whatever he wants to call it. The term is used interchangeably of a hill or a mountain. Now, remember, verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. The truth that is being presented here symbolically requires some spiritual insight if we're going to interpret it correctly. Here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads, he's doing it for us, are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So the great city sits on seven mountains. And so many ancient writers, including Victorinus, who has left us the oldest remaining commentary in the book of Revelation identifies the seven hills that John is describing as Rome. So Mystery Babylon is described as the center of the world religions. Babylon the Great is described as the economic and commercial power of the world. And yet chapters 17 and 18 are describing the same place. Now if you were here, we went through three messages just on the 17th chapter. We saw how the 10 kings, under the leadership of the Antichrist, and according to the next verse, says God's will destroyed religious Babylon. And yet, in the 18th chapter, it is very, very much in existence. How so? I take it probably they are destroying a section of Babylon. In fact, I will not be at all surprised when we get to heaven to find out that it's this place pictured known as the Vatican, which is a city within a city. Now, I'm not saying that the Roman Catholic Church is the one world religion that is represented in chapter 17, because it is not. The religion of chapter 17 are all the isms of the world. You see that bumper sticker coexist? That's the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. All of the religions of the world will be mixed together, but I will not be at all surprised if they use this hundred-acre site on which the Pope and his followers have as their own city within a city. It has its own unique flag, its own unique citizenship. The Vatican City has its own permanent observer status in the United Nations, not represented by the ambassador that represents other Italians. And I find it interesting that on two separate occasions as recorded by God, God makes it very clear that there is a distinction, because remember, we're going to, we've studied it already with religious Babylon, 10 kings, according to God's will, because God's sovereign. Look, Luther had it right on this. He was all mixed up on the Jewish people, but he had it right on this. The devil is God's devil. That is, the devil doesn't have absolute freedom. He is allowed to do what he can do under the hand of a sovereign God, And, of course, these ten kings obliterate religious Babylon, and yet when we come to chapter 18, we're going to see the kings of the world now mourning over the destruction of Babylon because it is God from heaven who is going to destroy it. Look at chapter 17 and verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. And then drop down to verse 16, and the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, the Antichrist, these will hate the harlot, this one world religion, and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Yet somehow, this city continues on. And so in the first half, the religions of the world coexist. But then an event takes place right in the middle of the, of the seven-year period. It's called the abomination of desolation. Daniel, in his 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel 9, says it happens right in the middle of the seven years. And Jesus does the same thing in Matthew chapter 24. And it is an event when the Antichrist will go into a rebuilt temple there on the Temple Mount, and he will profess himself to be God, And accompanied with that act is there'll be some inanimate object that will come to life, and the peoples of the world are going to be asked to worship the Antichrist through such an object. They're going to be asked to reproduce in in their own an image like that that they can worship, and the Jewish people will realize this cannot be Messiah, because God would never go against His Word. God would never ask us to do something that is idolatrous. And so there will be no more coexistence. Yes, there will be a one-world religion, but it will be the one-world religion of the Antichrist. And men will be forced to worship through the Antichrist, and they will be forced to submit to his economic system because you will be asked as a follower of this one-world religion to take his mark, 666. And the Bible says you will not be able to buy or sell anything unless you have the mark of the beast and so by this time in the 7 year time frame The tribulation period has seen its zenith of evil. That's where we're at right now. And Christ is getting ready to come back from heaven to the earth. He's come for his church in the rapture. He comes for his saints. He'll come back with his saints. In the rapture, we meet him in the air. At the second coming, he literally, physically, actually comes to the earth. The Bible says he will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. Now, you would think that during this seven-year period that the world would want to repent, especially as God brings His judgments. In the first half of the tribulation, we saw the seven sealed judgments. But as God brings these judgments, He's also bringing the gospel. How so? One hundred and forty-four thousand Jewish people who are converted. How are they converted? I don't know. Maybe it's a Damascus Road experience. I suspect that, since there's an even number, an exact number, 12,000 from 12 tribes, 144,000 who become the evangelists to the world. Right now, Gentiles, for the most part, with few exceptions, are sharing the gospel across the world. In this seven-year period, it will be the Jew, largely. They will be sharing the gospel. There's four groups those whom they have converted through the preaching of the gospel that will include both Jew and Gentile. John, when he describes their number, he says they're like the sands of the seashore. Then there will be two witnesses in the first half of this seven-year period. I suggested to you they are probably Moses and Elijah. And then, of course, those two men are murdered, and their bodies lay for three and a half days in the streets of Jerusalem. The world parties over them. And then God miraculously brings them back to life. But something else is going to happen during this time. The Antichrist is going to have a fatal wound. He is going to be slaughtered. And people are going to think it's over for him. But he too is going to come back to life. And He is going to be the world ruler. So there's 144,000. There's those who are saved who are witnessing during this time, tribulation saints who have met Jesus. There is the two witnesses. And the fourth group, very important as well, is an angel who preaches an eternal gospel. Jesus, by the way, said at this time, the gospel will go to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. We've been trying to fulfill the Great Commission. We still have some 6,000 people groups in the world that are unreached, but every tribe and tongue and nation during this time frame are going to be reached with the gospel. That doesn't mean we quit or throw up our hands and say, well, it's going to happen anyway. We don't need to do it. No, we are called to preach the gospel to anyone and everyone that will listen. We are to go to preach the gospel to everyone under heaven. But God is going to accomplish it during this seven-year period. And you would think through the preaching of these groups and through these judgments that are coming upon the earth that people would want to repent, but they don't. Three times over in the 16th chapter, before we reach this interlude, three times over it says, they blasphemed the God of heaven. The mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. And so I want you to listen carefully here in the 18th chapter to what the people are speaking because it will help you to see where they are spiritually. And maybe you'll see yourself in one of these four groups this morning. If you're taking notes, that's all by way of introduction. You say, I was wondering, Pastor. All right, I'm ready. First, there is the cry of the monarchs. The first group concerns the cry of the monarchs or the kings of the earth. Look, if you will, now in verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Now, do not miss this. Having just told God's people in verses 4 to 8 to come out of her, God will often give his people warnings. He told Lot, get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Get out of Dodge. Get out of here because God is going to judge it and whomever you have in this city, bring them out. And so God says here in verse 4 of chapter 18, "'Come out of her, my people, "'so that you will not participate in her sins "'and receive of her plagues.'" Very similar, by the way, to what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of not through the historian, as the liberal would say, but through the prophet Daniel, because Daniel wrote of it 600 years before Christ, when you see that event, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains." So here is God calling through his angels, to, through his angel to his people, literally, physically, actually, get out of Babylon, get out of there. And so, having uh, completed that call to come out, now the angel describes what the kings of this world will lament over. And again, there is this one world empire that the Antichrist is ruling, where this name Babylon is a symbolic term, much like Wall Street uh, refers to the stock exchange, much like Madison Avenue refers to advertising. Babylon refers to this one world system and specifically Rome. Now the world has been connected initially religiously but now there's one economic system, and it's going to create wealth like you could never imagine. And this city, Babylon, is going to become the wealthiest place on the face of the earth. And if you remember uh, from chap- look at verse 9, it says, "...and the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her." So here are these kings of the earth, these leaders… And the Bible says that they committed acts of immorality with this city called Babylon. Now, how in the world do you commit an act of immorality with a city? Well, often in Scripture, God links spiritual unfaithfulness to a sexual sin. He does this with Israel of old, and He does it with the church. For instance, in James chapter 4, James will say, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He uses the term adultery, moikea, that is a term used often in the New Testament to describe extramarital sex between two people who are married. God is married to Israel in the Old Testament. He is married to the church in the New Covenant, and so he describes spiritual unfaithfulness among his people as adultery. But here he does not use the term adultery. He uses the word porneia, fornication. Why? Because these are lost people. These are unbelievers who are committing acts of spiritual immorality. And so when they see their harlot, their city, their lover go up in smoke, the Bible says they weep and they lament. Now, how do all the kings of the earth literally see this event? Well, the next verse seems to indicate that they're probably here in Babylon for some conference, probably some world conference, trying to figure out the problems, but not to mention they will be able, through television and satellite across the world, through CNN, which will not be fake news at this time, they will be able to see this place go up in smoke. Look at verse 10. Standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, "'Whoa, whoa, the great city, Babylon, the strong city.'" for in one hour your judgment has come." There's never been anything like this in human history that would fit this. Now, if you were here for the opening sermon, I went through four approaches to the book of Revelation. Three are just absolute nonsense. And there are some preachers, even on our day, because they deny the uniqueness of Israel. They say the church has replaced Israel. They're wrong. They are dead wrong. God is not done with the Jewish people. He used them to bring the first coming. He is going to use them to bring the second coming. Now, I let some of them, even one, preach in my pulpit because he's a brother and he has the gospel. And you all know him. He's known across the world. But he is wrong to say that the church has replaced Israel. God is not done with the Jewish people. Just as He used them to bring the first coming, He's going to use them to bring the second coming. So what do those guys do when they come to Revelation? They spiritualize half the book. But you cannot spiritualize a verse like this. The Bible says they are standing at a distance. That's a physical proximity. He's describing a real place, and they are a certain distance away from it. And these kings, no doubt, who are coming... Together, they're planning, they're scheming on how to deal with the world's problems. They are going to be lured, as we studied in the 16th chapter, and as we'll study in more detail in the 19th chapter, to a battle by demons called Armageddon, and they're going against, going to go against God's Christ. And so notice what these rulers say, whoa, whoa, the great city, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. This city has survived. Why? Because God allowed it to survive. He allows them to dream, to scheme against the people of Israel, but they're only going to meet God in destruction. Whoa, whoa. It's a, it's a double woe, Because of all of their passions, all of their hopes, all of their ambitions, all of their dreams are now smothered. They're disillusioned. They're disappointed. The great city, the strong city, that bunker that they thought could never come down. Is now going up in smoke, and this is not some long protracted discussion, uh, destruction. It's instantaneous in one hour, very, very quick. God is underscoring as they walk, watch the smoke of her burning. Now that's the first cry, the cry of the monarchs. Now there's a second cry that John records for us, and it's the cry of the merchants, the cry of the merchants. We're introduced to the merchants here in verse 11. Follow along. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. So now the merchants, they take up the song of the kings. They weep. The word is Clio, That's verbal. And they mourn. That speaks of tears. The kings, they weep and they lament. Weep is verbal. Lament of the kings. That means when you literally pound your fist on your chest. These guys weep and they cry, tears running down their face. These businessmen, these CEOs, who become rich and famous and powerful, they are watching their city go up in smoke. This is the epitome of luxury, as we're going to see in a moment. And these people, you'd think they would want to get right with God. Are they broken over their sin? No, they're broken over their financial loss. Why? Because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Now, John is looking into the future, and he sees the future in a way that he can understand it and which his audience can understand it. And so he gives 27 items that represent great riches, many of which still to this day apply. In fact, many of the items that he mentions are unique to the city of Rome and not to Asia on Patmos, where he's writing from. Now, I could do a word study, I suppose, on each one. I'm not going to do that. But first, at the top of the list in verse 12, he mentions cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls. Then he mentions costly garments and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet. Third, he begins to list furniture and various trinkets in every kind of citron wood. Sometimes it's translated uh, thion wood. It's a highly prized wood. It comes from the sardinac gum tree. Uh, today, it is still highly prized. It's one of the most expensive wood in the world to have a piece of furniture made from. Sometimes they use it as an inlay, and sometimes the Roman emperors would make an entire banquet table out of it. It's luxury to the hills and every article of ivory, and every article made from very costly wood, and bronze, and iron, and marble. Fourth, looking beginning in verse 13. He begins to mention other luxury items, and cinnamon, cinnamon and spice, not necessary, but luxuries of the day, and in incense, and perfume, and frankincense, you know, little luxuries to sweeten up the body, make things smell better, and wine, and olive oil, and fine flour. And wheat, these represent fine dining, some that would need to be imported. Fifth, and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses because a person's wealth in the first century was often measured by the number of animals he had. And chariots, and he uses a Greek word for a four-wheeled chariot. That was the finest vehicle. Some of you came today in a four-wheeled chariot of sorts. And uh, the bottom line, though, is that there's a complete abandonment to wealth. They give themselves to money, to things, with total disregard for God. And if that were not enough, he adds in slaves and human beings. Now, that's kind of an interesting addition. You say, slavery? John's talking about slavery at the end of time? Yes, he is. Slavery is against the law across the planet today on paper but it continues in many countries of the world. And I'm not talking about sex, sex trafficking. I'm talking literally about people who are held for collateral, collateral debt bondage. Some of you have told me you've come from countries like that where if you owe someone money, you become their slave until that debt is paid. And if the debt is not paid before you die, then your relative takes up in the place where you left off. The top countries of the world, and the United Nations has put ranges of between 21 million and 48 million people today who are in this kind of slavery. The top countries include India, China, Pakistan, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Russia, Thailand, the DR Congo, Myanmar, and Bangladesh. But God, who knows the future, writes about the future ever before it happens, and so He includes slaves and human lives. It's actually not two categories, but one. Slaves, the ESV says just, that is, it says human souls. The ISV says uh, slaves, that is human souls. He's talking about people who are slaves, and I suspect many of them are believers. I mean, why cut off their head, which is what will happen to most believers who refuse refuse to follow the Antichrist? Chapter 20, verse 4, they'll be beheaded during this time, something our Muslim friends have reintroduced into human history. Why cut off their head when you can make some of them your personal slave? Verse 14, the fruit you long for has gone from you. And all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. All the possessions, all the luxuries, all the wealth that has been central to this city called Babylon that these people have worked for, that they've gotten as perks by giving their allegiance to the Antichrist will be gone. You will no longer find them. They will be stripped away in a moment's time. Verse 15, the merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance. Again, you can't spiritualize this. There's physical proximity. It's a real place, and they're standing at a distance from this place. They will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping, and mourning. The merchants have now joined the kings. They start their weeping, but they will actually never stop. Because as soon as they meet Christ in judgment, their weeping will go from this life into a place where Jesus said they never stop weeping, an eternal weeping in the lake of fire. Here the merchants have joined the kings, and they say, notice verse 16, the same pathetic song. Whoa, whoa, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. Now, you would think they would repent. Four groups preaching, 144,000, are converts, the two witnesses, and an angel, which is unique. Because angels don't typically preach the gospel, but God will allow it at this time. An angel, an eternal angel flying in the heavens will preach the gospel. Everyone will hear the gospel. And you would think they would repent, but they weep not over their sin, but over their junk. You know, today an earthquake comes, a tsunami, a hurricane. I remember especially watching that tsunami with the Japanese people which for the most part is a godless nation, less than 1% of 1% of the people in that nation are Christian. And the people were weeping and crying over all that they had lost, but not over their own personal souls. Listen, every good and perfect gift comes from above, but here are people mourning over temporal perspectives And not things that are of eternal nature. Now there's a third cry. There's the cry of the monarchs. There's the cry of the merchants. Now there's the cry of the mariners. The cry of the mariners. Look at this third group as they are described in verse 17. And every shipmaster, and every passenger, and sailor, and as many as make their living by the sea, stood at a distance. Four groups. First, the shipmaster. Some of your translations say the ship captain, the sea captain. Then there's the passenger, the guy who hooked a ride on the boat, the sailor who runs the boat, and then inclusively, as many as make their living by the sea. And again, they too are the at a distance. There's a physical proximity because God won't allow you to spiritualize this and write it off. This is literally actually going to happen in the future. Now, if you remember at the second trumpet judgment, God said a third of all the ships in the world were destroyed. I gave you actual numbers based on today's uh, number of sh- registered ships in the world today. What will that do? Supply and demand. If you're in the shipping business, which is necessary to move commodities around the world, you will become a very rich person. And so here they stand at a distance as they watch Babylon go up in smoke. Here's a picture of uh, Chiva Chiva Tevecchia Tavecchia is the port of Rome. As the crow flies, it's uh, 36 miles away. It was established in 18, uh, excuse me in 8, 854 A.D. Pope Leo VII uh, ordered its construction. In those days, the popes were more than just popes. They ran whole nations and countries. And, and, of course, to this day, it's still called the Port of Rome. So even if you're in the Port of Rome where all the ships anchor to this day. You'll see the plume of smoke. They're in Colorado last summer. They say you could see that plume of smoke 40 or 50 miles away. And of course, if you're out in the ocean, Rome is just 18 miles from the water. And so here they are. They're watching. They stand at a distance. And notice further verse 18. They were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like the great city? Sound familiar? Remember back in chapter eleven, chapter 13 in verse 4, when the Antichrist receives a fatal wound, he's literally killed, and he comes back to life, and the people say, who is like the beast? No one is like the Antichrist. How do you compare anyone to this man? We've literally seen him rise from the dead. We didn't see Jesus rise with our physical eyes, but we've seen this guy come back to life. And now these people are saying the same refrain, but of this great city. What is like Babylon? Babylon, it's the strong city. It's made us wealthy beyond wealth. But now it is going up in smoke. Verse 19, and they threw dust on their heads and were crying out weeping and mourning, saying, whoa, whoa, the great city. He's underscoring their mourning as you would take dust or dirt and you'd throw it on your head. But again, they're now mourning over their sin like the Ninevites do. But they are mourning over the loss of the economy. Their wealth has dried up. They're weeping. They are wailing. All that they've dreamed and schemed for is gone. Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour, she has been laid waste. Now, underscore how 9-11-ish this is. He wants you to see, again, this is not some prolonged destruction, but in one hour, very, very quickly, I have it underscored three times in my Bible, in verse 10, in one hour your judgment has come. In verse 17, in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And now in verse 19, in one hour she has been laid waste. Millions of dollars instantly gone. It's like taking the bubonic plague and the Holocaust and Pearl Harbor and... The stock market crash and the Great Depression and 9-11 and wrapping it up all in one, in one hour. And again, there's not a cry of repentance. There's a cry of mourning over the loss of physical material things. Now, there's one more cry, and it's the cry of the multitudes. It's a different cry, and it is from a different place. Look now, if you will, at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven and you saints, and apostles, and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. So while earth weeps over the fall of Babylon, heaven is in worship. Earth is mourning. Heaven is rejoicing. And the speaker, of course, who gives the command goes back to the start of the chapter. It's this angel of God. Now remember, when you see the term saints, it's important that you ask what kind of saints is he referring to. There are different classifications of saints in the Bible. The word saint is not like it's used today in Roman Catholicism where a select few people are given that designation. Every true believer, Old or New Testament believer, is called a saint. Old Testament believers are called saints. And so in Psalm 34, O fear the Lord, you His saints. Church believers are called saints. And so Paul is said in the book of Acts to be to be persecuting the saints in Jerusalem. Peter in Acts 9 also speaks of the saints who lived at Lydia, even the most immature believer in the New Testament, because sainthood isn't based on performance. God doesn't justify you by works as the Roman Catholic Church teaches God justifies you by grace alone, through faith alone, based on the word of God alone, based on what Christ alone has done, to the glory of God alone. And it is so church saints, even the most immature, like those in Corinth, are called saints by calling. And so we are told here, these saints, and now it appears to be a general designation of all those who are in heaven at this time. That would be Old Testament saints, that would be the church who have been caught up and raptured, Revelation 4, through that open door. It would be tribulation saints who have been martyred and are now in heaven. And verse 20 notes, notes the apostles and prophets, not just saints, but apostles and prophets. Remember, two leadership gifts on which the church is built, apostles and prophets. And please notice it says apostles, apostles plural that are designated with this city. Now, tradition, history records how the apostles were martyred, and most all of them were martyred in different places. But there is only one city in the history of Christendom where more than one apostle was martyred. Some would debate whether Peter was martyred in Rome. They do not debate whether Paul or Andrew or the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, James was martyred there. And there's only one city in the history of the world where God's apostles were martyred in the plural, and that is the city of Rome, which again eliminates some of the other suggestions people have made. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone, And threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Now, I've mentioned to you that some refer to this Babylon as Jerusalem. Can't be. Immediately, that's just sloppy exegesis. Because you will notice this place, this great city that is destroyed, the Bible says, will not be found any longer. There's no expiration date for the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. When Jesus comes back, he will rule and reign for 1,000 years from that city. And they are commanded, notice, to rejoice. Why? Because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. This place, this headquarters of the Antichrist that has been responsible for the death and the destruction of millions of God's people, most of them through beheading during this period of time, finally they are now going to be judged And while that brings sadness upon the earth, it brings great joy in heaven. They are commanded to rejoice and they are not taking so much pleasure in the death of the wicked as they are in the vindication of God's people. That God is a God who is just. That God is a God who will someday make every wrong right. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Listen, don't get down in the world that we live in. Don't let the devil begin to cause you just to think negatively. I know things are changing so fast. My wife was discussing with me yesterday of an 11-year-old boy. Converse sneakers have made him the model. He's an 11-year-old drag queen. You talk about child abuse. You talk about wickedness and depravity, and all these Dems, and one Republican who's coming unglued because people in a number of southern states want to protect life and not murder innocent babies. And it's so easy as you see all this stuff coming undone to get discouraged. But remember, read the end of the story. God's people in the end will be victorious. We will win. That's what God says. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Not just a small millstone that a man would use. But a great millstone, like a couple of oxen would, would pull around a turnstile. A great millstone. And the great city will be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And look at the refrain of the words, any longer. They're important. Verse 22, and the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsmen of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. Verse 23 And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. This description of both their luxuries and the necessities will be removed. All the music will be gone. All the manufacturing, the craftsmen will be gone. All the factories represented by the sound of the mill will be gone. All of the weddings will be gone. They will be there no more as the ESV renders it. There'll be no more music. There'll be no more merchandising. There'll be no more manufacturing. There'll be no more marriages. And this is going to become the trigger to the battle of Armageddon that we'll study further in the next chapter. And why? What is the reason for this judgment? He zeroes in on it, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Corrupt leadership characterized by sorcery and deception. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and all who had been slain on the earth. And God, who is long-suffering, who is patient, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, finally says, enough is enough, and the dam of His patience gives way to His wrath. And then, as we studied in chapter 16, then God gathers the kings as He deceives them through demons. They will reap what they sow, and they will come to this place in a battle that we call the campaign or battle of Armageddon. And God will destroy them in a moment's time. And then He will remove every unbeliever from the planet. The sheep will be separated from the goats. And Christ will rule and reign victoriously. And at the end of that rule and reign, and we'll see why that is so important in God's plan, He will then create a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, God's people have been reading the Revelation for some 2,000 years. This book originally written to seven churches in 95 AD, and yet chapter 4 through 22 is futuristic. Say, what does this have to do with me? Everything, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's all profitable. So what are some of the timeless applications we can take today? Let me suggest at least three. Number one, I would ask you this. Are you living like a citizen of Babylon or like a citizen of heaven. God knows that the lure of the world is strong in every age. And in verse 4, he says, come out of Babylon. And he addresses, my people, meaning believers. Church saints to this day are vulnerable, and they will be vulnerable in that day maybe more than ever because you'll be able to do anything you want with anybody you want, because the restrainer will have been removed and sin will have a holiday during the seven years. Come out of her. Don't give in to the lure of her prosperity or her comforts or her pleasures, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus will say. And Babylon still tugs on the Adamic natures of man, calling us to indulge, and the sinful pleasures of the world instead of following the living God. And God continually invites his people to come out. Paul will tell the Corinthians, therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. You know, we hear a whole lot today about the separation of the church from the state. We need to hear a whole lot more about the separation of the church from a worldly lifestyle. And if you dance with the devil, you're going to get burned by him. He is going to trap you. He doesn't care about you. He hates you. He despises you. He's the one who's energizing this world system, and he wants to take down your testimony and ruin your home and your marriage and your business or anything else you can think of. So I would just ask, are you living like a citizen of Babylon or like a citizen of heaven? Secondly, are you storing up treasure in heaven or on earth? Perhaps you see people in our day who are wheeling and dealing and getting rich, and you think, man, I want a piece of that action. Don't envy Babylon. Only a fool envies a fool. Jesus gave a very powerful parable in Luke 12 to teach us that. Listen to what he says about money and about things that really matter, about real treasure. If you remember the occasion, he's preaching about hypocrisy and hell and persecution and perseverance and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He's preaching on all these things, and then one guy comes out of the audience, and all this guy can think about is money. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Here are two brothers, they're fighting over the family inheritance, and one brother is trying to publicly embarrass the other, and Jesus said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? What makes you think I came here simply to to settle your little disputes amongst each other? He came to seek and to save the lost, and then through a second birth, you can learn how to get along with other people. But here's this guy who's just consumed with money and with things. And he's got a problem, and the problem very simply is greed. Beware, Jesus said, and be on your guard against every form of greed. Now when you come down to verse 22 of chapter 12, we are reminded that he is not just speaking about unbelievers. He is speaking to his people so that we can make proper application from the folly of these unbelieving brothers. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Now, that's the exact opposite of what the world teaches us. You're classified as rich or poor, successful or unsuccessful, as a power broker or a peon by what you own. And if from the world's perspective you own little, you're a nothing. That's what the world says. And so he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grains and my goods. Here is a father who is a farmer who is so skilled and so blessed of God that he earned so much he didn't know what to do with it all. He has his bumper crop. He can't store them in the piece of property he has, so he decides to tear down the barns he has and to build bigger ones. And then we hear his thoughts in verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. By the way, in many ways, he's like the typical American. Oh, I want to go to college. Why do you want to go to college? So I can get a good job. Why do you want to get a good job? So I can make a lot of money. Why do you want to make a money So I can get fat and, you know, have a big fat lifestyle and retire early and go to Florida and play shuffleboard. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. Now who will own what you have prepared. So is a man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Dying had not really crossed this guy's thinking. There's a lot of people, they're making all kinds of preparations. They got insurance preparations. They got house preparations. They got their 403 and 401s and all these other preparations. And they prepare for everything except death. And the day this fella dies, the first day of his retirement, it's on that day, he says, soul, you've got many goods stored up for many years to come. And Jesus said, you fool, this very day, this very night, your soul is required of you. And so he will say to his people, and we'll explore this in our Wednesday night series, "Sell your possessions and give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out in an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes nor moth destroys." Third question: ask yourself: Are you a citizen of the world, or are you a citizen of heaven? Are you a citizen of the world or a citizen of heaven? In this coming day, people are going to be identified either with Antichrist in his capital, Babylon, or with God's Christ in his new Jerusalem. Do you know, can you rejoice today that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Here's Babylon not even destroyed yet, and people are playing their music, they're celebrating in their marriages and in their merchandise, and then destruction comes. And it is the first city on the map that God totally obliterates. And then He will ultimately obliterate all the cities of the world. The Bible says He'll bring the mountains down low, the valleys up. He'll stone the unbelievers of this world with hillstones from heaven. You say, I think I'm a citizen of heaven. You don't want to just think so. You want to know so. A lot of people hope to go to heaven, but they don't know. The Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. You say, well, I hope to get it right someday, pastor. Someday may never come for you. The Bible says a man who hardens his neck after much reproof, it will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. You can cross a line by which you can never cross back again. Today is the day to be saved but you must change your mind over evil. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. He's not just offering you fire insurance from hell, though he is, but he's offering you so much more, and unless you come on his terms, you cannot come at all. You cannot hold on to your sin and love it with no desire for God to change it and forgive it. You come to a cross where he bore in his own body the judgment so that you could be forgiven and made a new creature in Christ Jesus. And if you will come to him today, he will receive you. For Christ Jesus received sinful men. Now, our Father, I thank you today that this is not simply what you have said. This is what you are saying. So give us ears to hear. Help us to do some personal inventory You told your people in this coming future time to come out of Babylon. You are warning them of the lures of sin that still exist and are all around us in our day. Help us to do some personal evaluation. Help us to make sure that our hearts are clean. That while we live in this world, we are not a part of its value system. Father, I pray today for someone who is here who has never been saved. Thank you that salvation cannot be earned. It has been paid for in full with the blood of Christ. It is the gift of God. Help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I deserve judgment. But I thank you that you came to earth, that you died in my place, that you took my punishment. And you proved your ability when you were raised from the dead. And so I come to you asking you to forgive my sin and to change me. To have my name written in the Lamb's book of life. and to make me the kind of person that I can be that I might live for your glory and honor. Help someone, Father, to say an eternal yes today to Christ. I ask it in his name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And if you are here, and maybe today you said yes to Jesus, make it public. Jesus taught that if it's real on the inside, you'll be unashamed on the outside. Walking this aisle has never saved anyone. But Jesus teaches if you know him, you won't be ashamed of him. So I want to invite you to leave your seat. Maybe before today you received Jesus. You've never made it public. And it should ultimately be expressed in baptism. The Bible knows nothing of an unbaptized, saved people. The Bible says believe and then be baptized. Man has reversed it. We baptize little babies and then later ask them to believe. You want to put your baptism on the right side of your conversion. Now, if you're here and maybe you're a believer and you've been baptized as an emblem of your faith, I want to invite you to come and join this church. Matt, lead us. step out now and come please.